Before we jump into this week's episode, I just wanted to mention that Kenneth Folk, a Dharma teacher who I have a long-standing relationship with and admire greatly, is joining the Buddhist Geeks Network as a teacher. And his first offering is going to start in mid-February. It's a three-speed transmission life retreat. And during the five weeks of the life retreat, Kenneth's going to share how the practices of vipassana, self-inquiry, and just sitting relate and complement with one another. So this is going to be an interesting exploration of three practices and three frameworks that are often seen as being quite different. You can find out more about his retreat and others at BuddhistGeeks.com slash retreats. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, back for the first interview, actually, of the new year, and really looking forward to this one. We're joined today by Soryu Foral. Soryu, it's great to uh, have you on the program. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. And um, I just wanted to mention, you know, we got connected in person at the Buddhist Geeks Conference last fall, and we have a mutual connection in Daniel Thorson, who's now uh, living and practicing with you at the, the Modern Monastery up in Vermont, which we're going to talk a bit about. Um, and it was really cool that he decided to connect us. I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. I'm really happy to know him and to have him here. I was uh, honored to be on a, a group conversation that he led for Buddhist Geeks a while ago. And uh, after that conversation, it turned out that it worked out well for him to come here. And he's adding magnificent uh, inspiration and skills to the team. Yeah, absolutely. So you founded a nonprofit called the Center for Mindful Learning. And it seems like there's at least two different aims uh, that I can see. One is the kind of outward-facing project, which is to bring modern mindfulness programs into schools and into educational contexts. Uh, obviously a growing trend and something that's um, very interesting. Yeah, and we're very proud of how we develop that program. Uh, in particular, that we developed it in a school in collaboration with an entire school's worth of teachers and administrators. Uh, so we know that it works in schools because that very population and the students as well helped us to create it. Yeah. Uh, and the significance of that is the fact that we have such a powerful team of people here who have a deep practice, a deep daily practice, and bringing that out into the world so that we have a commitment to our own personal experience of awakening and also living that as a life of social, emotional, environmental responsibility. And what you're referring to there is, is uh, I've heard it referred to as the Modern Monastery Program, and that's, uh, it seems like you have, what, 10 or so residents who are living full-time, practicing, working, and also, uh, from what I understand from Daniel, doing quite a bit of retreat practice each month. That's right. We 
have currently 10, soon enough 11, and uh, soon after that we'll have three more spots opening up uh, because we'll move to a slightly larger location. And the way you described it is exactly right. It's uh, exciting. It's, a, it's insane because we have a very intensive retreat structure. Once or twice a month, we do a full week retreat. And we also have daily practice every morning and every evening. We also work on our programming, on running the organization. The monastics here are the staff for the organization. And they do everything. Uh, from fundraising to bookkeeping to email to mopping the floor, everything. And it's uh, a very exciting, it's very rich environment because of that integration of what we refer to as awakening and responsibility. Right, and it seems like the, the awakening part obviously looks and sounds a lot it sounds similar to you know the kinds of intensive monastic training, which I know you've done quite a bit of yourself. And then the responsibility part sounds like it's the uh, you know kind of the programming and the you know the work in schools. Um, so clearly, those two are are both happening there, which is interesting. Yeah, I I've had an interesting path here. Everyone who's here has had an interesting path here. But just to speak from from my own, I grew up in a family. Uh, of nonprofit entrepreneurs. My f- father and my mother both have done a lot of good for the world, for the natural world and for the human world through work in nonprofits. And uh, I went to college and I got a degree in economics because that seemed like the best possible way to make the world a better place. But my ultimate commitment was and has always been to all living things. I uh, have been helplessly in love with life on earth. And economics seemed like a good way to protect life on earth from human greed. But in the end, it didn't seem like a good enough way for me personally. And so I went and trained in Asia for many years in traditional uh, Buddhist monasteries there. And this place is the integration of those two aspects of our world. Mm -hmm. The monastic aspect in which we directly face and cut through human selfishness and the responsibility aspect in which we move into society and work with the structures of injustice, greed, hatred, ignorance, and transform them into structures that support trust and love, and justice, and compassion. Uh, so that's, a, that's, on the one end, magnificently idealistic, and on the other end, completely practical. How can these be fully integrated is our exploration. Mm. And uh, I, I want to get into that a little bit more, but I also, I guess, have a question about the kind of lifestyle that you all are... Yeah, please. ...are living there and... I guess one of the questions that comes up, and it's, it's, it's unusual, I'd say, in the modern world because so many people, um, you know, with so many choices, I guess their, life, their lifestyles are really uh, not as focused and not as distilled and also not as insane as, 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 uh, Anna, <laughs> as Anna said. Um, yeah. 
So I'm curious in that environment, you know, where there's a real strong focus, there's a tight schedule, you know, from the morning you wake up, which quite early, as I understand, to the moment you go to bed, you know, they're, they're, which is quite late, which is quite late, you know, there, there, there seems like, I guess there could be a challenge or a question about how does one live such a focused life and at the same time it not become uh, so all-inclusive that, you know, that things are left out that are important to remember or, you know, it, how, how do you deal with the question of the, the insularity, the potential insularity of living a monastic lifestyle in the modern world? It's a good question from, I can't help but, I can't help but answer from my perspective. And my perspective is that uh, nowadays in the modern world, I think we especially value having many shallow relationships. Mm. We want to maximize the number of relationships, the speed of those relationships. Uh, We want to spend as little time with as many people as we can and still have a relationship with them. We don't mean to do that necessarily, but the structure of our world in many ways demands that. The, the Facebook and Twitter sort of structures that we exactly. fall into, yeah. Exactly. Um, so here, we, we do have that. We're on Facebook. We do uh, that kind of communication also. But we have a very special opportunity. And it's something that I learned uh, very uh, richly, intimately, in the monasteries in Asia. And that is that we have the opportunity to spend time with a relatively small group of people who we get to know very, very well and who we did not choose to be with. Mm -hmm. We didn't decide, I'll go there because of those people. We go there because of a purpose. And we share that purpose, but we may not share the same personality. Mm -hmm. And so from a certain perspective, I would say that the people who are on the internet surfing the web pages that they want to surf, talking to the hundreds of people who they want to talk to, uh, having the opinions that they want to have and getting agreed with or disagreed with according to their whim, uh, that that is a kind of, of insularity. Mm-hmm. Like an insularity of perspective. Exactly, because you can, as long as you're choosing your perspective, then you're insular within your perspective on your perspective. So here you're with people who you can't get away from and they do not agree with you about some of the things that are most important to you. And that demands a deep opening up, a deep revelation of perspective. It demands it. It isn't that you're going to get around to it eventually. You're living with this person. You're living two feet away from this person. <laughs> yeah, there's no unfollowing people in the uh, monastery, no... I imagine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and so you have to be open. And that means that we have, that sometimes you're sitting next to someone who's breathing loud, and it turns out, you never knew it, but it turns out that this is the most irritating person in the world because of their breathing, and maybe you have to leave this monastery because they're breathing, and what's wrong with them anyway? Why can't they learn anything? 
they're obviously immature, and you gradually open up to the possibility that all that might be in your own mind. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes it isn't. Last night we had a very intense discussion about diversity. Uh, that's a term which, as it should be, it, it has many diverse meanings. It means different things to different people. Different people value different sides of that. And it was, a, it was an emotional conversation which we carefully integrated into a practice. And uh, that practice wasn't artificial. It's because that's what we're living. So to me, this is an opportunity to transcend a kind of insularity that I believe is beginning to permeate the modern world. Okay, interesting. And I, I wanted to get into also, you know, the core of what you were talking about, that you're focusing there on both awakening and responsibility. Um, when we had a kind of pre-conversation for this interview, we talked a bit about awakening and we didn't get into it, but, but you said something very interesting, which was that the way that you're describing or defining awakening is the end of all feedback loops. And that was a way that I've, I've not heard before, but I wasn't too surprised because I know you've uh, studied and work closely with Shinzen Young on this program. Mm. And we've, we've had Shinzen on the program before. And I think uh, the first time I spoke with him, I remember texting one of my friends as we were having the conversation, which was <laughs> in, in itself a kind of uh, an affirmation of what you just said. But um, <laughs> I, I texted my, my close friend. I was like, well, we just hit 15 on the geekometer. You know, this is a 10. A 10 this, a, a, it, it reached 10, you know. Um, so when I heard you say awakening is the end of all feedback loops, I wasn't completely surprised because I know you and Shinzen uh, influence each other a lot. So I, I wondered if we could kind of talk about that and if you could, you know, kind of break that down for us and share a bit more about what you mean by awakening and what, what, what you mean by feedback loops and what it means to uh, come to an end of that. Great. I, as you say, work very closely with Shinzen. We are very close friends and colleagues and I have enormous appreciation for his work and his life and his personality and his friendship. He inspires me again and again. I, he keeps on out-inspiring himself <laughs> uh, in our conversations. And in the questions that I ask him, I have questions about how to teach, how to run this place, how to uh, work with this or that issue, and again and again, he, his clarity is a gift. Uh, I, my, my main influence has been in the Zen tradition. I trained for several years with Shoto Harada Roshi, Taigen Harada Roshi, and I also trained with Bodhidhamma Banteji at an Ambedkar monastery in India, and I trained at a few other monasteries in Asia. Uh, so the majority of, of my foundation comes from Zen, but I have a familiarity with other forms of monastic practice as well. And at this time, Shinzen is uh, the main practical influence, uh, adding his brilliance to that foundation in terms of me, but also in terms of the history of this practice. He's adding, as he puts it, his grain of sand to the top of this mountain. Uh, we, it, it can get very geeky. <laughs> and, and I think that training here is, is strange because Zen is often well known as being anti-intellectual. 
anti-geek. Uh, so that's something else that is being integrated here, the myriad forms of practice. Uh, and that is in some ways easier and in some ways harder than I would have thought to be able to, in one single Dharma talk, go over highly complex and intellectual analyses of suffering and then cut through all of that with a poem or a shout. Uh, this is, this is a, an amazing style of art <laughs> that, that we are trying to do here and I think that we're also trying to do in the modern world as the various forms of practice that haven't been in a lot of communication with each other for centuries are beginning to need to be in, com in communication with each other and be tested and revealed by each other. I, uh, one day, as I was uh, walking across my room in, in India, in southern India, suddenly saw that everything is feedback loops. Everything. Absolutely everything that exists is a feedback loop. If it exists, it's a feedback loop. And it's funny because you just heard me do what I typically do. I just repeat that again and again, trying to, <laughs> trying to get it across and finding that, oh no, I said the same words again and I didn't get it across again. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a very important moment in my life. And it's something that I try to convey. Uh, it's very important that we see that uh, a spoon, for example, is a feedback loop. Why? Well, someone, someone made a spoon. And that spoon made people want spoons. So they made spoons. So people wanted spoons. So they made spoons. There you have a feedback loop. Uh, or you and I are having this conversation. That's a feedback loop. I speak and then you speak. If that feedback loop ended, the conversation would also end. See? Ta-da. There, there it was. So, you didn't respond, so there we are. So then, but, that, but then that fed into a feedback loop. My desire to continue the conversation then arose as a chain in this, in this, uh, in this loop. So this is very important to see, we can look at it at, at a very basic level, if we wish, that the, in the way that the Buddha described it early on in his teaching career, and then this continued as a theme throughout, the underlying feedback loop, the basic feedback. And, and when I say feedback loop, for information, the word in Sanskrit is sanskara. That's the word that I'm referring to in Sanskrit. And in English, I call that a feedback loop. It's a self-making mechanism. You could call it autocatalysis if you want. That's one way to talk about it. Autocatalysis is actually an excellent and very literal translation of the word sanskara. Can you, can you see that? Um, sort of. I don't really know what catalysis means. So, oh, so, <laughs> so to, to catalyze something means to enable it. It means to you enable its its existence. You enable its creation. You catalyze something. You can have a catalyst in a chemical reaction. Mm -hmm. And what does the catalyst do? It enables a certain pattern of behavior to occur. Uh, auto means self. So 
so what is so what does sanskara mean? So the san is is self, and then the the skara comes from the same root as karma to make. So a self making mechanism. And the Buddha describes this very clearly. He says, Sanskara creates the other four skandhas, and it also creates itself. Sanskara creates form for the sake of form. And it creates Sanskara for the sake of Sanskara. It also creates consciousness for the sake of consciousness. And then the same for uh, however you translate Sanya and Vedana, maybe feeling and cognition, if, if you want. So... Uh, there is such a thing as a, as a self-replicating mechanism. Such a thing exists. That's what DNA is. DNA makes a body that makes DNA. Uh, that's what, at the most basic level, if we consider the Buddha's teaching, that sanskar, that, that self-replicating activity, is what makes consciousness and quote, name and form, or the entire world, inside and outside, all name and form, the entire universe, meaning all thoughts, stars, leaves, conversations, all of that, name and form, as a whole, and consciousness create each other, or you could say feed on each other. They are feedback loops. So we see a wall, I'm looking at a wall right now, and our consciousness feeds on that wall. But what we often don't notice is that that wall feeds on our consciousness. Now, this happens on one level very literally. Because people conceptualize walls, we build them. So that's one side of it, which is very important. But it's true on an even deeper level, uh, which is something that I, that I find very interesting. It's sort of a fun thing to talk about. Uh, we, if, you, if you look at a tree, now I'm looking out the window at a tree, we might think, well, that tree exists even when I don't look at it. Even when I'm not looking at it, it's still there. But we don't actually know that. In fact, no tree that wasn't being observed has ever been observed. Mm-hmm. And so it's just possible that that form that that name and form, tree, is produced by consciousness. And then you might ask, well, okay, what produces consciousness? And the answer is that tree does. The consciousness feeds on that name and form. To see this, to see it absolutely clearly, reveals that as a sanskara. And I'm right now talking about the, the basic section of Pratitya Samutpada, the, the very bottom of the mm-hmm. uh, Pratitya, dependent, sum, together, Utpada, arising. So uh, this sense of, of dependent co-arising, that is seen directly. And when it's seen directly, then we have an entranceway to the end of the ignorance that uh, that well, I guess you can just say is the foundation of those sanskaras. And when we cut through that, then there, then that, then the ignorance 
can no longer produce sanskaras, and that therefore is the end of feedback loops. Feedback loops completely end. And because feedback loops have ended, there is freedom. And that freedom, that complete freedom that results from the cessation of consciousness, the end of consciousness, that is what I refer to as awakening. Okay. Um, so just, just to kind of follow up with that and kind of explore it more deeply. Um... Please. I, I talk about this a lot, and I feel deeply dissatisfied with the way I talk about it. <laughs> I feel very uh, frustrated, actually, that I talk about it with, so, with such little skill. <laughs> it's so important to me. And I talk about it, and I'm here, and I hear myself saying things that I don't quite agree with myself, but I can't think of a better way to say it. Mm-hmm. So I would re- really, really appreciate any questions or clarity that that you could add. Well, I was just, you know, wanted to share a couple of the, you know, the different kind of ideas that come to mind as you describe that, and, um. You know, one of them is, I guess I would sort of connect it with my understanding of like the classical Buddhist tradition and the notion of nirvana as cessation. Uh And even the descriptions, you know, in modern practices of of these moments of sensation or these, you know, kind of experience, experience or moment, even those things are kind of weird to talk about because they're more kind of dropping out of experience rather than experiencing some lack of experience. Um, but you know, that's kind of one, I guess, way I I would Mm -hmm. think of what you're describing, you know, as, as this kind of almost formless or, or void of any thing experience Mm -hmm. or understanding Mm -hmm. versus, you know, uh, when when you brought up the whole uh, feedback loop thing, I was thinking, you know, what, what is the difference between that and, you know, and just things happening? Um, Mm -hmm. if you say everything's a feedback loop, I think of, you know, the, that, that koan, uh, uh, the fox koan, I forget, Haku's mm. fox, you know. Haku Joe's fox. Haku yes. Joe's fox, where he talks about, you know, he's he sort of the turning phrase is something like, you know, the, the law of cause and effect can't be obscured or feedback loops, you know, can't be obscured or something to that nature, which kind of... Yeah, an enlightened, an enlightened person really, really, really does not ignore uh, causes and conditions. Right. That's, that's probably a, a better translation. Mm-hmm. Great. So... You know, that kind of feels to me a little more like there's not that things don't end, but they continue and there's some sort of different relationship with their continuing. Um, but those feel a little at odds to me in terms of, of kind of. So, so I guess the question arises, what do you mean? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> is this some sort of, you know, end of something or is it just, you know, a kind of recognition that that things don't end or, you know, what, what, what is this awakening that you're describing? I don't really get it. Yes. One thing I like to say about this is I say this, meaning the thing we're talking about, this is without limitation. Therefore, it cannot be contained in words. Mm-hmm. However, this is without limitation. Therefore, it must even be contained in words. Classic, classic Zen, right there, dog. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes logical sense, doesn't it? Yeah, sort of. 
if it's if it's without limitation, then it then you can't fit it into words. But if it's without limitation, and if you couldn't fit it into words, then that would be a limitation. So it's a very uh, it's a, it's it's tricky, and it's dangerous to try to conceptualize that which is not subject to conceptualization. Uh, however, we can, we can continue to talk about it. It's, it's true. If there's only nothingness, then that's wonderful. That's a very good state. It's excellent. And it often provides a sense of freedom and relief. It's very, very good. But it isn't what we're referring to when we say awakening. Uh, there is... We even cut through that. We even let go of that. And so everything is gone. Everything is gone. Even nothing is gone. It's all gone. And with it being gone, you can say that the person has totally died. But then we, if we experience it, we can ask the question, is there anything that remains? Is there anything at all? It doesn't have to fit into existing or not existing or having or not having or increasing or decreasing. But just as you said, it is an experience. It's not sensory experience, but it is experience. And for us to try to imagine it uh, is running directly contrary it's not that we shouldn't imagine it enough to see that logically this makes sense to move towards. But if we spend our time trying to imagine it at, with the goal of thereby experiencing it, then we are confused. Mm-hmm. We've, we're trying to walk forwards, but with our heads turned backwards. So we, at a certain point, need to stop doing that and practice, actually practice. And that's what this place is for to be sure that the practice is at the core, the life is at the core, the way we're living. Our, pra- our, pra- our understanding and our practice and our lifestyle have to be in accord, in complete accord. That's the significance of a place like this, of an intensive training environment, of a community, of a monastery, so that the practice is at the core. Because otherwise... We'll just spend our lives gaining and defending opinions. And what is the practice from, from your point of view? There are many different techniques. One of the interesting things about this location is that there are so many different techniques used. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shinzen, as you know, has a highly systematic uh, and analytical way of teaching, and I teach in that way. There are also breathing and energy exercises that are done. Uh, we use what Shinzen refers to as the four basic forms of practice. Nurture positive, meaning the desire to improve ourselves and the world. We may wish happiness to all beings. I think you've noticed that I sign my emails and my voice messages, may all beings be happy, because that's a nurture positive practice. We generate and spread goodwill. We may pray, even praying to a deity. Uh, we may imagine our goals. What's, what is our vow in this life? What's our commitment? 
That's a nurture positive. We also do noting, which is another basic technique worldwide. We do a noting practice, carefully observing in systematic ways experience, sensory experience, carefully observing it in order to have a complete experience. Uh, If we do a nurture positive practice, then we find that we can use that. We can begin to identify with an identity that is without identity. We can imagine a god or a bodhisattva who is beyond identity. And we can identify with that being. And it seems strange, but it is the case that this actually works. It's a practice that is successful at transcendence. We can do a noting practice so that we experience these very feedback loops completely and see that there aren't feedback loops. Uh, Nothing survives. Nothing survives for even a moment. It may seem as if you and I are having a conversation, but nothing has survived. You didn't survive even one word, neither did I. We directly see that because the noting practice brings us to a complete experience, a total experience. And you could say that incomplete experience is delusion and complete experience is awakening. Mm -hmm. You could also just as well say that incomplete awakening is delusion and complete delusion is awakening. If we have a complete experience of delusion, that's already awakening. If we have an incomplete experience of awakening, that's already delusion. And so we have a place like this in order to complete experience, not just have a good idea about it. Beyond those two techniques, which are very basic here, there are two more. One is the inquiry technique. Something like, who am I? I like to ask the question, where is your breath? That's a question that's very accessible, but... uh, turns out to be quite difficult to answer. (laughs) Uh, Where is it? Where is your breath? Who are you? Where did you come from? The koans, what's the sound of one hand? Uh, Mu, these also fit into that category. And then all of these techniques eventually come to a do-nothing practice a practice in which there's nothing that we can do. And this, this sort of practice has many variations, some forms of shikantaza, and even some interpretations of choiceless awareness is a, is a uh, manifestation of the do-nothing method. Mm-hmm. So the four basics, nurture, positive, noting or observing, inquiry, or in, in particular around here, uh, the possibility of using koans or koan, koanized questions, mm-hmm. as Shenzhen calls them, and do nothing. Uh, not, uh, uh, the practice of no practice, the, the technique-less technique. Mm-hmm. Those four are all in use here. And it was fun, a few, a few weeks ago, I asked everyone who's training here to say what they're working on right now. And it was just amazing to hear 10 completely different techniques. Mm-hmm. Uh, one person was repeating and then, and then fully experiencing the resonation, the resonance in the body of the words, I am wonderful, I am wonderful, 
I am wonderful. Simply repeating that, repeating that, seeing what's, is there any resistance to that? Is there any clinging to that? Where's the tightness that emerges? Uh, observing that very carefully as a nurture positive with some noting mixed in. Uh, another person had the technique, uh, just this. That's, that's the way that it was expressed. Just this. When walking, just walk. When seeing, just see. When talking, just talk. When sleeping, just sleep. When sitting, just sit. That was one. Another one had a, an energy work practice using the breath in order to cultivate and uh, disentangle, unhinder energy, especially in the torso. Uh, was what was being worked on at that time. Mm-hmm. So these are just a few examples. Uh, another person was, was very simple noting practice, absolutely straightforward, on and on. But uh, it was so exciting to see the variety of experience, the variety of technique, and that's something that was very special to share here. And I think is, I think is something that we're going to find more and more in the modern world because there are many techniques, they, they all have strengths, they all have weaknesses, they all have benefits that other techniques don't have as much of, and they all have drawbacks, right. which other techniques resolve more effectively. Right. Uh, so it's very... So the good news of the modern world is that we have a lot of possibilities, Mm-hmm. And we can, if we know how, or if we're working with someone who knows how, we can fit the technique that's, most Im- that's best for us right now to our situation right now and move through it with great efficiency. Yes. That's the good news. Right, 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 <laughs> right. I can see the bad news coming. <laughs> uh, you can probably guess some of the bad news. I think you're quite familiar with some of it. Sure. Every technique is like a, a, a it's, if you imagine having a, uh, a labyrinth, and imagine a labyrinth, a labyrinth takes you all over the page before it allows you to get to the center of the page. But the way you, you get all over the page, if you imagine drawing or of course walking, it could be a field or a room, but I'm just imagining it on a page. Sometimes you can draw yourself through a labyrinth with, a, with your finger. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that, but uh, if, if anyone out there isn't familiar with a labyrinth, look it up and you'll see a lot of beautiful labyrinths in the image section of your search engine. That structure, it seems as if the ostensible purpose of that structure is to get you to the center of the page. But the truth is that if you want to get to the center of the page, you wouldn't have a structure. You just go to the center or to the center of the room. You want to get, just walk to the center of the room. But the significance of the labyrinth is that it forces you, in order to get to the center, to go around the entire space. And familiarity with the entire path is very important when we're walking a path. And so what's, what's dangerous if we skip around technique to technique is that we don't see that sometimes the reason we're having so much difficulty is not that there's something wrong with the technique. It's that the technique has skillfully brought us to an obstruction in our own minds, which we now need to work through. If we wanted to, we could change techniques and quickly get to the center of the room. But we don't notice often that we're, we're subtly avoiding a corner of the room that we don't really want to go to. And 
And so to, to have a path that we stay on forces us to come to terms with that. And so that's the bad news of skipping around here and there. And is the reason it's so important that if we're going to use various techniques that we have someone who can, who can look out for us. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's easy for us to, when we become uncomfortable, well, I was working with someone the other day who said something so beautiful. It was just, it was inspiring. Uh, he said, if our body can't let go of pain, our mind will create a world to fit it. I thought that was wonderful. So if we're, if we're uncomfortable with going to a certain part of that labyrinth, then it's easy for us to come up with reasons in our minds that we should change techniques. And that's the bad news. The thing is, sometimes it is a good idea to change techniques. It's just so hard from our own perspective to tell the difference between those two. So we have to have enormous integrity, and often it's easier to do that when we're in conversation with someone else. Okay, thank you. Um, I, w- I wanted to just focus on another aspect of this, which is um, how all of this connects, you know, the practice, the, the part about awakening, the end of feedback loops, with, um, with the responsibility piece. Um, and, and just kind of hear a bit about your thoughts on, on how those are, are linked. Um, in what ways are they mutually supportive? Uh, in what ways are they connected? In what ways... Um, you know, as I understand it, the way that you're approaching things in your own teaching is that they're sort of so dependent on each other that you can't really separate them. Yes, that's how I talk about it. And in my opinion, that's how it has traditionally been discussed. The Buddha himself rarely talked about the Dharma. He, he usually, when he talked about the Buddha Sasana, the, the dispensation of the Buddha, he referred to it as the Dhamma Vinaya. That's a term that was used, which, which we often don't know about. But the, the, the Dharma, however you'll translate that word, and the discipline, the Vinaya. He talked about it that way. There's the Dharma, the, we're awakening to the Dharma, we're breaking through to the Dharma, but we're also disciplining ourselves. There's a lifestyle associated with this. Uh, one of my main concerns about modern practice is that there, there is an attempt, uh, as there has always been, but there still is, an attempt to, to pull these apart, to, as we, one might say, I just want to get enlightened and then go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, just I want to get this over with so that I'm not suffering anymore, and then I want to be done. That, to me, is very dangerous, we, we don't get to go home. <laughs> uh, we don't get to, to, to just live in a dishonest way because we've had a certain experience. We each have responsibilities. We each have a commitment. We have what I call our vow, our vow in being alive. We have something that we are alive to do, a purpose in our lives. And our awakening in order, to be, in order to be confirmed, as far as I'm concerned, as authentic, is something that liberates us into that, that liberates us to do that. 
it overcomes the tangles that are preventing us from living the life that we most believe in. And if we have a, a liberation that liberates us into an inauthentic life, then to me that isn't liberation, or you could say that's wrong liberation. On the other hand, if we don't have that sense of responsibility, if we're not behaving in responsible ways, but if we have the sense, well, after I get enlightened, then I'll be of service. After I get enlightened, then I'll deal with my problems. I, just want, I really want to use enlightenment to get away from my problems. If we're not willing to, to, to settle in to the discipline of being a responsible human being, then it has traditionally been said that one cannot achieve awakening. This is a traditional view that we, we must, or at least true awakening, we must take that responsibility in order to attain true mindfulness and samadhi and experience a breakthrough. Then we have that breakthrough and that liberates us. So my view on it, if, and from a Buddhist perspective, is that if you have the Eightfold Path, then it begins with right view. You then have something that I would translate as right dream or right vow, right motivation or aspiration or even thinking, but I'd say right vow. That's the way I like to talk about it. We have a, a clear sense of what we're going to do with our lives, and then we, we talk about it. We try to conceptualize it somehow, and then we begin to, to try to act that way somehow. I don't know how to do it yet, but we have to try somehow, and we get kind of good at that, and then we reach a crucial moment, and that is, am I willing to change my lifestyle in accordance with this? There's a crucial moment, and in Zen, often this right livelihood fold of the Eightfold Path is considered the most significant. Uh, in fact, some teachers say that that's the pinnacle of the Eightfold Path. It's not the breakthrough. <laughs> it's, if you look at the wheel, you can imagine the Eightfold Path in, in the form of a wheel with eight spokes. It's on the other side of right view. It's the opposite one. And that's considered ultimately where it's at. That's where we're really going. Are you willing to change your lifestyle? And that's often considered to be what it means when they say that... It, from a mystical perspective, and some people disagree with me on this, but from a certain mystical perspective, and by the way, I support those people. <laughs> These are wise people, so disagree, uh, and I'll support you. But my way of talking about it is that the, the significance of the statement that if a person is awakened, then they must become ordained. They must be a monk or a nun. The significance of that from a certain perspective is, is this. If you're not willing to completely adjust your lifestyle to your realization, then you're not experiencing realization. As they say, you can't say, I know, but then you don't do. If you know and you don't do, then you don't know. So when we're willing to completely let go of our lives, of our lifestyle, that's essential in this progression. When we do that, then for the first time, we have sufficient trust in ourselves. Because finally, it isn't that we're letting go to some other realization off in the distance, some concept that we're holding on to that someone taught us. We're letting go to our direct experience of our own authenticity and love. That's what we're, Are we willing to let go to that? It's not that we're letting go to something out there. It's that we're willing to let go to, to this 
true, direct, honest, caring experience right now, that realization, the complete experience right now, if we let go to that, then there's a certain lifestyle that's in accordance with that. And that's what I call achieving our vow. We're achieving our vow. And we're living without regret. And when we do that, then we trust ourselves for the first time in a way that allows the power within us to come out. And that's what you would call right effort. A new level of effort arises. And with that new level of effort comes a new level of mindfulness. And with a new level of mindfulness comes a new level of samadhi. And therefore, the next breakthrough arises. I was going to say a new level of delusion. but <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. So a new level of delusion arises, which you then break through with the samadhi. Exactly. Right. That's right. exactly how it happens. Right. Your next deeper level of delusion emerges, and you break through that, and then you have the next right view, mm. which is the next right vow, and the next right speech, and the next right action, which becomes maybe, in some cases, livelihood. And if so, then we're on to effort, mindfulness, samadhi, and another breakthrough. But my concern is that if you don't link, if you don't consciously link the responsibility to the awakening, meaning our lifestyle with our realization, our action with our awareness, if those aren't linked, then neither one can be completed. They demand each other. And it's very easy to mislead ourselves and think, I'm just going to have that realization and get some relief and be done with it. Or I'm going to do what I think is right and be done with it. But as I like to say, as Shinzen likes to say, the horrors that litter human history were not committed by people who thought they were wrong. People think we're right and we do what we think is right. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. And yet, we destroy civilizations. And yet, we eliminate species, ecosystems, life on Earth. We've destroyed 50% of We've destroyed 50% of the large animal life on Earth in the past 40 years. That's the sort of thing that we do. We've destroyed cultures, languages, worldviews, not to mention the countless individual human beings who we have ruthlessly eliminated intentionally. People who do this, we think we're right to do it in the moment of the action. And from our perspective, it seems like the right thing to do. Do we have the humility to cut through what we think is right? Do we have the humility to break through our own perspective? Do we? This is the significance of a path of awakening. If we don't have that humility, then what kind of responsibility is that? that we're, what kind of action are we going to be taking? 
But if we're not willing to take action, make it real in terms of our lives, in terms of how we live, then what kind of awakening is that? That's some distant awakening that's actually just designed for our own self-satisfaction. That's not liberation. That's just selfishness. That's just a new kind of manipulated spiritual addiction. So we have to, we must use both sides, the Dhamma and the Vinaya, awakening and responsibility, transcendence and transformation, to support and confirm each other. We need something to, to give a standpoint from which to judge the other. And they have to be brought together in that way. So one way to look at it is that we teach two things around here. We say, let stuff go and get stuff done. That's what we do here. Let stuff go and get stuff done. All right, what do you get done around here? You get good stuff done. That's, and that's all. That's it. If it's not good, don't spend your time doing it because life is too short. Do not do it if it's the wrong thing to do. If you're clear about that, do not do it. And is that hard for most of us? Yeah, it's really, really hard. So we have a community to help us. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it's not as hard. And then once it's not as hard, we realize it's not so hard. And then we can do it. But to try to do that on our own is creating unnecessary hurdles. We're social animals. Friendship is the absolute foundation of this path. So we get those good things done for the sake of the world. And we don't do the bad things. And what do we let go of? We let go of our insights. We let go of our clarity. We let go of whatever it is we're most clear on. That's our obstacle. Yes, it's our, it was our liberation. But now it's our obstacle. Yeah, I've heard Shinzen often say in a real clever way, you know, today's enlightenment, tomorrow's mistake. Exactly. That's a classic phrase in Japan. They say that all the time. Mm-hmm. So we need a way to be held to that standard so that we don't turn what we think is liberation into doctrine and belief and fundamentalism. It's easy for that to happen. So to have a place where we're held to that standard is an enormous gift. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.